Well, it's not a secret. We live in a culture that champions self-fulfillment, rugged individualism, self-identity, personal freedom. A culture where we're encouraged to shun anything that constrains us or defines us, tells us what we should or shouldn't do. Duty has become an ugly four-letter word. You know, even in the church, there is a, a, a bit of a pushback in evangelical circles, strong churches. There's a pushback that says, we don't want to hear about the responsibilities that are ours in Christ. We want to hear about grace. Tell, tell us more about God's loving kindness towards us. Tell us more about the mercies of Jesus Christ and who we are in Jesus. Tell us the blessings that are ours as followers. But don't talk to me about duty. I don't want to be told how I'm supposed to live. I don't want to be reminded that I have a calling that I need to follow. Don't be one of those preachers, please, who focuses on the duties and the responsibilities of each Christian. Because the reality is, for many of us, preaching the Christian's call to duty is synonymous with legalism. I'm free in Christ. I, I, I will grow in godliness slowly, but... I don't have to necessarily worry about bending my will, walking the truth that the Bible confronts me with. Again, it's become a dirty four-letter word, duty. Several years ago, I was in a pastor's fraternity, and we were all chatting about different examples of, of preaching. And one of the pastors, I'll never remember, or never forget, he, he was describing uh, something. He was visiting a church. And Sunday morning, he had this long sermon, and he thought he did a passionate job of it. He was engaging with people, but every once in a while, he noticed that the young people, especially, were, were snickering. <laughs> they would kind of look amongst themselves and a little chuckle and then go on. And eventually, by the end of it, he had to sit down. And he said, what was going on? What was I saying? And it was simply that every time they heard the word duty, it reminded of something that they picked up after their pet. Now, I... <laughs> You might say, well, that, that's a silly example. That's an extreme, extreme example. They, they were obviously immature and silly. Well, nevertheless, how many of us actually recoil physically, some way, unconsciously, at the thought that we have a duty to live up to in this life if we are Christians? I, I mean, it's one thing to be told that we have a general obligation to grow in godliness, to live out a life of increasing godliness. But it's quite another to be told that the Bible tells me this is what your life should be like. You need to change things so that you line up with the truth of Scripture. It's another thing to be told that I have a duty to perform. It smacks of legalism, doesn't it? But you know what? It's not legalism if we truly grasp who we are now in Christ. If we grasp what God has sovereignly done on our behalf, 
what God has sovereignly done in us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we fully grasp the, the extent and the depth of the gospel, then that concept of duty becomes a privilege and not a burden. It's a calling. It's a delight and not an obligation. In the first part of 1 Peter, in those first two chapters, Peter has been telling us and building us up in, in all of these wonderful truths of who we are in Christ, the riches of our salvation. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, then it's because God has caused us to be born again. And, and we are now in Christ, in the sense of in his resurrection. We are united with him. We are now people of God, his own possession. We are living stones, a holy priesthood, we have privileges as that priesthood that we are called to live out spiritual sacrifices and to proclaim the excellencies of our God. Now, last week, we started this process where Peter has moved away from telling us who we are in Christ, taking us to the very summit, as you would say, of the mountain of the glories of the excellencies of what God has done in Christ for us. And he's launched now into this truth about how should we live? If you are truly a Christian, if these things are yours and you claim them as yours, how should you live in this world? Remember what he said? He said, if these things are, are true for you, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a sojourner. You're an exile. You're, you're a resident alien. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and you wait now the heavenly city yet to come. And because of that, you are abstain from the worldly flesh, the passions of the flesh, which are waging war on your soul. You are to keep your conduct honorable among all men. Now, this morning, it's just as if someone asked Peter on our behalf, he said, well, what do you mean by that? Tell us a little more. Give us some real concrete examples of what that means. So Peter now starts into a section where he's going to be looking at three spheres of our life. He's going to look at marriage, he's going to look at work, and what we're going to see this morning, he's going to look at this area of earthly authorities. And he says, let me tell you what this means for you, that you are exiles and sojourners, people who are abstained from the evils of the flesh, and those who are to be honorable amongst men at all times. Now, just to give you an idea of where we're heading this morning, this is the purpose Living honorably in an unbelieving world means that we must submit to all human authorities as unto God. Simply put, if you get nothing else this morning, this is what we're going to be driving at because this is the meaning of the verses that we're seeing. Now, the first thing we need to look at and notice is right off the bat, this word, be subject to, right? It's a command, it's not a request. It's not an option. It's not if it's a good time for you or if it suits you. It's a command. It has a moral imperative upon us. 
And because of that, it, it carries an urgency. This is something vitally important to your life here and now. So pay attention. But I think the most important thing to, to think about this is the, is the meaning of the word. It, it means literally to put yourself under someone else's authority. Now, when we think of, uh, of authority, we automatically often go to the armed forces, the army, the navy, the air force. And we say there's generals, there's captains, there's colonels, there's corporals. And we have this whole array of rank. You think about it in that context because it does have that, that inclination and that meaning there. There are three things that this word be subject to must include for us. First of all, there must be a recognition of authority. Two, there must be an internal disposition to submit to that authority. And number three, there must be a very explicit outward obedience to that authority. All three of these things are included in that word to submit. Recognition, submission, and obedience. I must recognize that there is someone over me who has authority over me. I, I must have a heart that is predisposed to subjecting myself to that person because of that authority. And... I must do something that clearly indicates my obedience to that authority. Now, how hard is that concept for us today in our culture? Again, what are the central ideologies of our culture? Self-fulfillment, individualism, self-reliance, self-identity, personal freedom. And what's the new ism on the block for us as a culture? Well... We're all equal. <laughs> and all equal has come to mean that, you know what? The rights of the few or the one triumph over everyone else. Basically, anything that limits me, anything that constrains me, anything that would infringe upon my freedom or personal space by telling me what I should or should not do, I should reject because I'm self-defining. And this is really where the rubber meets the road for us, isn't it? Because Peter continues to say, be subject to whom? Every human institution. Now, we just need to take a break, kind of a, a detour and come back and understand to whom Peter's writing. He's writing to the early church, the, the, the first Christians in Asia Minor under Roman rule. Peter explicitly tells them, be subject to the emperor and to the governor sent by him. Why? Because God has placed them in power and in authority over you to govern. And, and their task is to punish the evildoers and to recognize good citizens. Now, we don't have an emperor, right? We don't have a governor who takes that, that, that legalistic mandate of the emperor and imposes the will upon us. But we do have governments, don't we? We have a federal government in Ottawa. We have the provincial government here just nearby downtown Toronto. We have a municipal government. 
Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, tells us that all levels of government, all authorities, have been established by God. They exist in a specific time and in a specific place because God has deigned it so. He has given them the authority. He has brought them into power, no matter how much we may like or dislike them. And then this is where we bristle to submit, isn't it? How many blunders have we seen here in Ontario, in Canada, in the last couple years? How many corrupt politicians are out there? How many bad decisions, how many ungodly policies are being moved that are contrary to the will of God? And that's just over the last couple of years. I mean... Are we to be subject to a government that consistently denies the basics of biblical truth? A government that seems intent on redefining the biblical parameters of gender and sexuality? Yes. If we live south of the border, should we be subject to someone who seems to be a serial liar? who rants and raves at the slightest provocation, who deems and belittles people for the fun of it, it looks like, who acts like a petulant child just to get his own way. Yes. If we lived in another part of the world, would we have to be subject to a leader who is intent on dragging our country into a war, who turns a blind eye to injustice and whose internal policy seems intent on genocide, wiping out small, insignificant people groups within the country. Hesitantly, I'd say yes. Now, we live in a blessed country. We have checks and balances. We have legal ways to protest and to lobby we have ways to show our displeasure and even change the policy of governments. And we should use them. We should use everything that is available to us. But the short answer to the question is, no matter how corrupt, no matter how unjust, no matter how immoral the government may be, we are to be subject to it. In the very words of the Bible this morning, who were the believers to be subject to? The emperor and the governors. Well, who was the emperor when Peter was writing this to the early church in, in, in Asia Minor, in Turkey? It was Nero. This is a man who, by all historical accounts, was notorious for his sexual deviance. He seemed devoid of scruples and compassion. He took great pleasure in the killing games, even putting Christians into the forum. He is personally responsible for killing several people, including his stepbrother, his second wife, and his mother, who just happened to be his lover. And Peter says, obey, submit. And Peter, at this moment, is more than likely in prison, in Rome, and within a few years, this very man is going to have his life taken from him. 
he's going to be unjustly killed. And Peter says, submit to the emperor. And who's the governor of Asia Minor during this time? It's Pilate. That weak-willed, fickle, crowd-pleasing man who refused to free Jesus. We don't have time to get into Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. I, I would encourage you to look those over prayerfully this afternoon and, and to ponder them. But suffice it to say, Christians are called to submit to civil governments, all civil governments. Now, having said that, I recognize that in the New Testament, there are examples where even the apostles did not obey all the time. When they were told not to preach under penalty of death, they broke the law. They did not subject themselves to it. But here's the thing. They were willing to embrace the punishment for this disobedience. So if we look at the Bible as a whole, this broader uh, perspective, a, a, a grander theological or biblical context, unconditional submission to civil authority is not always demanded of us. There may be times when we must obey God rather than man. And if that's the case, we must be like the apostles and be ready to embrace the consequence for our disobedience. But this is really where I want to park for a minute this morning. And, and I want you to think of what verse 13 says and what verse 13 doesn't say. Be subject to every human institution. Is Peter ignorant of the realities of life? No. He himself was at times disobedient. He, he knew that there were going to be exceptions to the rule, but he didn't include anything here. He doesn't give any qualifiers. He doesn't give any exceptions. Even more, the Holy Spirit sought that it not be included. When, when Peter was writing and the Holy Spirit was actually giving him the words to speak, leading his hand, all it says is be subject to every hurt human institution. And so I want us to simply ponder this this morning, this reality, and let it settle in. In the context of verse 13, the verse that we're looking at right now, there are no what ifs. There are no buts. There is no if it goes against the will of God, then it's okay. You see, the command is broad. The command is binding. The command is simple. Be subject to every human institution. So what I would say is that the regulative principle of our life is that we are to be subject to every authority on earth. The regulative principle. And I think the reason why we need to ponder that is, be, is, is twofold, really. First and foremost, we still battle with the flesh. We're still 
we still love these isms, these self-identity, self-definement, and all of these other things. We don't like to naturally submit ourselves to other authorities. You know what? That was the sin of the angels. That was the sin of Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. In almost every situation of our lives, we look for exceptions. We look for ways out. That doesn't really apply to me. And that was written a thousand, two thousand years ago. It has nothing to do with modern life. That's not who I am. I am a child of God. It doesn't necessarily apply. I'm under grace and not the law. There's nothing here that can say, ha, look at that. I, I don't need to listen. I don't need to respond in that way. I don't need to bend my life. It's not convenient for me at the time. It's outdated. It doesn't qualify any exceptions. And I think that's the first thing to recognize is this internal battle. We still don't want to submit to all authorities. And how many of us can say that we perfectly submit in our life to God in all things? And I, I think the other thing is we have this reality of our culture again, don't we? Well, that culture pushes these hot buttons, independence, self-reliance, self-identity, and, and these wage war on our flesh. Now, again, I, I understand that there may be exceptions to the rule. But I believe this verse gives us a regular principle. It, it shines a spotlight on what that basic principle should be. Believers are to subject themselves to every earthly authority. Again, I, I, let me just say as an aside, there may be an exception. There have been over the last couple years, whether it's been with COVID, whether it's been with the truckers in Ottawa, there have been numerous times when Christians have said, this is my right, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to push it. And yet I would say, does it truly convene the will of God? Does it, is it truly run contra God's will? Or are we simply using things to prop up what we believe are our own rights? The regulative principle of the life of a Christian is that believers are to be subject to every earthly institution. I, I even see this, you know, in, in what Peter gives us as the motivation for why we are to submit. What does he say? For the Lord's sake. It's as if Peter understood and he knows that there are exceptions and now he says, you know what, despite that, you need to be submissive for the glory of God. Do it for God because Jesus Christ submitted himself to such humility for you. Do it for him who suffered so much more than we could ever experience, yet even fathom. How can you compare your sufferings to the sufferings of Christ? There's really no higher calling, is there? No higher motivation for us. That Christ humbled himself. He submitted himself to be born in human form. To live a life 
never taking his donkey over 30 kilometers outside the city limits. Never throwing gum wrappers around anywhere. He never did anything that broke any of the laws. And he suffered humiliating and shameful death on the cross for our spiritual life. He died in our place. And here's the thing. If Christ's love for us was such that he was willingly submitting himself and suffered that, that great indignity, how can we deny and not endure the hardships that we're called to endure today for him? Do it because you now bear his name. You are a Christian. Do it so that the glory of his name is made known to those around. Sojourners and exiles don't look for the rights and privileges and freedoms that society gives them and has to offer. They look for what is yet to come, for what is theirs in Christ. Now, maybe you're not convinced that a basic principle of a Christian's life, of a believer's life, is to be subject to every human institution or authority. Now, I want to tell you, I'm not trying to prove anything to you this morning. I just want us to deal honestly with the simplicity of the words that are presented for us. And the reality is we have this pervasive antinomianism, this, 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 this understanding that the law may be good and right, it has a purpose, but you know what? It doesn't really apply to me. I'm an architect, so I don't have to follow laws that say what I can and can't put up in my own backyard. I'm a lawyer. I understand the law, so I don't have to, to go and, and do a process uh, that is necessary so that it fulfills the, the requirements. I know that I am to give under the, the government of my taxes, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. I, I, I can shave off a few things here and there. We have this pervasive thrust, this sinfulness in us that the law is good, but it doesn't necessarily pertain to me, and it certainly doesn't pertain in certain situations. Now, I think this text tells us that we have a pervasive gospel duty to be subject to every human authority. But notice Peter doesn't stop here. He continues in verses 15 and 17 through 17 by saying, For this is the will of God. This is God's purpose. Why Christians are to submit themselves to every human institution. This is God's revealed reason. It's not hidden. This is God's revealed reason that by doing good, we put to silence the ignorance of the foolish. When Peter wrote these things, he knew that the church was suffering. He knew that the church was being persecuted. And he knew that things would more than likely get worse than better. Some of them may even suffer like him and be thrown in prison or worse, thrown to the lions. 
But Peter doesn't say, get up. Go and protest. Go to the streets. Demand your rights. Rebuke the ungodliness that you see around us. And I know this will rub especially the young people here so strongly because they have such a, a keen sense of, of, of wanting to do right and justice. And that's great. But Peter doesn't say, stand up and fight the man. He says, this is God's will for you. That when you live in submission to earthly governments, when you obey the laws of the land, you display and even prove the sovereignty of God who gave them their very place, their very authority in the first place. <coughs> by being a good citizen, <coughs> uh, by uh, honoring and, and obeying, even when you disagree with the laws of the land, you silence the foolish people, you literally put a muzzle on them. That's the meaning of the word silence. You muzzle them. Now, if you've had a chance to ask me about our family, I'm sure recently I told you we got a new pup. She's just two years old, and she was a problem pup since we got her. And uh, she will hear something rustling somewhere, and she starts barking like you wouldn't believe. She gets to the point sometimes where there's no other recourse than you have to grab her and put the muzzle on her. Peter says, when you live in obedience, even to ungodly rules and regulations, even to ungodly governments, you silence the foolish people of this world. When God has caused us to be born again, not only are we now free from sin, we're free to live a life that is truly God-honoring, God-centered, God-pleasing. When it comes to doing a, 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 how we foolish and silence the foolish, Peter says we do it by our good deeds. He says it is the new temperament that we have. If we're new creatures in Christ, we have a new character. It's our new disposition of submitting yourself to God and honoring God in all things. That, that is the result of being born again, that God-centeredness, even in a fallen world. When we recognize that the legitimacy and the authority of every government comes from God, we are free in the gospel to honor the good intentions and the good purposes even of ungodly governments as long as they don't violate clearly God's will for us, God's law. When we recognize that this world and, and all of the political realities and structures that they are, they, they have a time in, in space, they have a reality here and now, and that we are called to live in them, to submit ourselves in, we are free in the gospel to live in submission because we declare God's goodness. Again, that doesn't mean that we're going to agree or like. We may be repulsed by the policies. But the, the thing is, if we're free to live as good citizens and glorify God, we will desire to live in compliance even to bad administrations, bad governments, bad politicians. Why? Because we recognize it as God who rules over even them. 
Uh, our ability to live as people who are free is because we are now servants of God. And that sounds like a bit of a, a contradiction, doesn't it? We're free, yet we're servants. <laughs> Uh, the word servant here, we've seen it before in different uh, scriptures, and it means literally a bond slave, someone who was legally indebted to serve someone else. And in our context as Christians and, and thinking about the gospel, it highlights that God has redeemed us from our sin. He owns us. We belong to him. And because God owns us, our highest joy, our highest duty, our highest responsibility is now to fulfill the desires of our master, to obey his wishes. Our joy is to fulfill his purposes. And what is that purpose? That through the good deeds of submitting to every human institution, we silence the foolish. Now, as challenging as that may actually be to think about, that there is a formative, regulative principle of submission to every government. I, I want to just say, and we don't have a long time to go into it, just throw it out there that this actually has a great trickle-down effect. Because when it says every human institution, the actual wording in the original there is literally every human creation. Now, in the immediate context, Paul applies this to whom? To the emperor and to the governors. But the reality, at the end of it, he says, honor everyone. Honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, fear God. And so there, there is this trickle-down effect from, from greater to lesser that every situation in this life in which there is someone in authority over us, we are to honor them by submitting. Well, we see it very evidently in a picture of marriage, one to another. We see it in the family and submitting to parents. We see it in our workplace, which we'll look at next week, in, in submitting to the, 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 uh, the boss or the, the, the process of the, of, the, of the place that we work at. We see it as we go to school. Anyone who has been given a position of authority, we need to submit to. Because in that act of submission, we recognize God's sovereignty in placing them there. And so just think about all of the relationships that you have. In every one of them, we are to show honor and submit. Now, at the end, again, I said that Peter sums everything up in a simple encouragement. Four very short, punctual statements. Is honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, so he said, maintain a, a sincere love for other brothers and sisters because they, like you, are sojourners. They're pilgrims. They're exile. And they're on this journey of learning to submit likewise. You're called to walk with each other. Maintain a healthy fear of God so that you continue to honor God and follow him. And you don't follow the ways of the world. Recognize and obey the laws of the land where God has placed you. Seek the good of the city 
as Jeremiah has said as well. Seek the good of everyone who is made in the image of God. As Christians, we follow, we live out these things. And as we do, we demonstrate what an exemplar, exemplary Christian, or an exemplary citizen should be. No matter where we live, no matter how onerous, no matter how ungodly the government. So what are the three things of submission? Recognition of authority. Internal submission to authority. And an explicit outward act of obedience. Is this your life in all the spheres and all of the facets and all of the relationships that you have? Is it, first and foremost, in the context, your attitude toward the politicians and the governments who espouse things that we abhor? I want to encourage you. There are a lot fewer exceptions. This is the basic rule. Submit and glorify God. Our Heavenly Father.